0: Welcome to Pull Back, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. Today, we are introducing one of our favorite past episodes. This is the Plastics Crisis episode with Sarah King from Greenpeace. This is one of our favorite interviews that we've done. I love the topic of plastics in that it gives me like horrific nightmares.
1: (laughs) Yes. And Sarah was so uh, charming and so knowledgeable. So I think it's a really good episode for people who want to know more about like what the problem with the plastics crisis is, as well as sort of what some of the solutions are. Also,
0: we're just like really excited that Greenpeace talked to us. So without further ado, enjoy this one, this throwback.
1: So, Sarah, I'm curious to know sort of how you first became sort of aware of the problem with plastics and how you first sort of got involved with uh, the fight against it.
2: Sure. So um, I actually started as an intern with Greenpeace in our U.S. Washington, D.C. office. Um, Even though I grew up in Canada at the time, um, I was looking for an internship at an environmental organization. And the ones in Canada weren't offering opportunities at that point. So I applied to our US US office. And that was back in 2006, I think. So when I came on board there, I was on the Oceans team. And I was kind of responsible for supporting the US-based Oceans team in whatever campaigns they were working on. And one of them was the Defending Our Oceans ship tour. Um, And it was basically a ship tour where one of our ships was doing a tour in different areas, um, highlighting different threats to the oceans. And one of them was actually a visit to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
2: And that was kind of, I would say, the first time that I really um, became more aware um, of the extent of the problem. Um, you know, I'd heard about it before that, but it was sort of my first introduction to really the extent of of the issue and some of the major drivers of plastic pollution and the plastic waste crisis.
1: Wondering if you could, just for listeners that might have heard about Greenpeace before but may not know much about the organization, can you tell us a little bit more about what Greenpeace does?
2: Sure, so Greenpeace is a global campaigning organization. So we work to expose essentially the major environmental threats to biodiversity and to, uh, different communities around the world, um, hold those that are responsible for those threats accountable and push for solutions, um, green and just solutions to these problems and ultimately work towards, um, a more green and peaceful future in, in all of those meetings. Uh, so no small task, uh, but yeah, you know, we really, sure. we, yeah, we, um, I would say we're most known for, um, our nonviolent direct action approach, and um, you know, really working to push for the needed change that we need across our broken economic system.
1: And I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I think Greenpeace was it was started in Canada, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Greenpeace was founded in uh, 1971
2: in Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, where I didn't I'm know based, that.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: And now it's sort of all over the world.
0: That's so great. Yeah, yeah. I'm part For of sure. the the Greenpeace UK's like mailing list. So every time they <laughs> climb on top of a freighter or something, they I get seed in those. Oh,
2: nice. <laughs> Nice. Well, you should join the Canada. I you know, should. Unless. Yeah, <laughs> and
0: then you'll know what's happening here. Yeah, I definitely. I don't know why. I, like, I'm like I'm on the UK one, but not this one. That's a silly me. <laughs> well, Kyla did just move back to Canada.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably signed uh, a GPUK petition or something. And like, I sure oh, did. That?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, Sarah, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about Greenpeace's actions on plastic, um, what sort of the general campaigns are.
2: Sure. So Greenpeace is part of the global break free from plastic movement, uh, which is a very large, essentially coalition of um, over a thousand organizations that are working to stop plastic pollution and waste at the source. And so Greenpeace has a global plastic free future campaign and Greenpeace Canada, where I um, am responsible for our oceans and plastics work. Uh, we are part of that global campaign. And so we really, um, I would say, where we focus our attention is on the major producers of plastic. And so some of the big players known as the fast-moving consumer goods companies, so the Cokes and the Unilevers and the Procter & Gamble's of the world, we are pushing to have those major producers and polluters to move away from their reliance on single-use plastics and packaging and uh, have them switch to reuse refill and zero waste essentially models of product delivery and then we're also um, you know taking a look at the overall um, supply chain whether it's the food system or other goods you know a big place where the consumer interacts with a lot of single-use plastics and packaging is also at the retail level. So with supermarkets, so we're also trying to put pressure on those major um, distributors um, and also producers of plastic packaging to reduce their plastic footprint and also move to these same models, uh, reuse models, refill models. And then um, I would say overall, you know, what we're trying to achieve is a ban, essentially a global ban on all non-essential Plastics on the production, sale, distribution, consumption of non-essential plastics, but really starting with the most problematic and unnecessary. And so, those are the plastics that uh, regularly end up in the environment. So, you know what we see when we do community cleanups or shoreline cleanups, or in the images of plastic pollution, plastics that are known to be toxic to human health. Plastics that, despite recyclability claims, are still you know, going to landfill. Um, So there are a lot of different types of plastics that they say are recyclable. um, But really, the reality is, is that very little less than 9% of plastic waste is being recycled. And then lastly, plastics that we know have alternatives. So this is kind of the category of problematic and unnecessary plastics that we want governments to act now on to begin to eliminate from our lives um, and from the environment. So yeah, those are I would say our are kind of major streams of work and we do that we tackle those goals in a lot of different ways but a big piece of it is you know actually changing the conversation around plastics and you know really trying to counter the industry narrative that we need single use plastics that they're hygienic you know that it's not a production problem it's a consumption or an individual responsibility problem we are trying to really uh those myths and um, empower people essentially to join uh, the reuse revolution and join all of the amazing progress uh, that is going on all around us t- with those that are working towards a more circular economy and a zero waste future,
0: essentially. Your work must have been cut out for you in this pandemic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, surprisingly, no. I mean, there's still so much amazing momentum. Um Yeah, we've definitely seen rollbacks by companies, we've seen pauses by governments that, you know, we're supposed to be moving towards ban on certain single use plastics. But there still is a ton of momentum, there's still, you know, a lot of businesses that are operating with their reuse or refill models that haven't, you know, relied back on single use plastics. But definitely the industry has gone on the offensive, and they're really pushing, especially the hygienic talking point right now. And... Yeah, you know, we've, we've seen an increase in plastic waste and plastic consumption and plastic pollution in different forms during the pandemic. But at the same time, we've also seen polling in terms of people's desire to continue to move towards bans on single plastic. We've seen the numbers go up from even last year. So there's still a lot of enthusiasm to break out of our, you know, plastic obsessed lives.
0: Oh, that's so good. I that some positive news on our podcast for once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so it's rare.: <laughs> Yeah, it feels like people really care about single-use plastics, but it's just such an overwhelming problem. I was wondering whether you might be able to tell me a little bit more about, like if you were to break down what the problem with the environmental problems with plastics are. Uh, could you should you maybe explain that for someone that might not be already on board? I guess to start at the beginning.
2: of plastic is made from fossil fuels. It's being extracted from the ground. So because it's coming from a fossil fuel, from extraction all the way through to production of the plastic itself, to consumption, disposal, and even once it's pollution, even once it's like in the actual environment, it emits harmful greenhouse gas emissions that whole time, and it also pollutes at every single stage of its life cycle. And through its pollution, it's contributing to negative health impacts on adjacent communities. It is harming wildlife, it's creating air pollution, it's creating water pollution. It is really negatively impacting everything that it's interacting with, honestly. So I think most people listening would be most familiar with the impacts on the marine environment in our oceans and on ocean wildlife, you know, probably many of us have seen the images of a whale with plastic in its stomach that's washed up on shore, or, you know, the, the seabirds that um, have ingested bottle caps and the sea turtle with the straw in his nose. Those are, I think, what most people are familiar with. But what people are less familiar with are the beginning of the plastic story, like the the extraction of fossil fuels, the production, the chemo- petrochemical production, Um, The pollution associated with that and how often these developments are in lower income, uh, marginalized communities, and they are disproportionately negatively impacted by the production of the components that go into that same chip bag that you're purchasing at the store. And so plastic is an interesting issue because it really does touch on so many of the different environmental um, and social justice crises that we are facing today, biodiversity uh, crisis, oceans crisis, climate crisis, environmental racism it's It really touches on all of these different issues and it's interesting because it is also something that is in our daily lives, you know, and I think most people once they start to learn about plastic waste and plastic pollution. Um, And kind of look around, you know, and they're usually in their kitchen, mostly, they're like, wow, actually, it's everywhere. And so much of it really is unnecessary. And I think it's a really interesting way too for people to enter into the conversation about the climate crisis as well. It's a good entry point. um, When people start to make that connection to that, you know, plastic pollution is essentially another form of a sort of a solid oil spill. From the pollution that we see in images to the less visible forms um, and increasingly the studies that are coming out that microplastics, so I guess just to take a step back, plastic doesn't really biodegrade in the sense that we would think. It breaks down over time and it breaks down into tiny, tiny pieces known as microplastics or nanoplastics. And those little plastics are more easily spread through the environment. And so we see it spreading into food chains, into our drinking water, into the air we breathe. And that's another way that pollution from plastic is actually spreading uh, and impacting kind of every corner of our planet. But also, again, you know, it's coming back on us um, and infiltrating our lives in that way as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Microplastics are in our water, and we're breathing it. <laughs> Think about that; gives you anxiety. <laughs> I like I like that description of a solid oil spill. It's it's something
0: I hadn't really considered before, but it really um, encapsulates the like. It really gives gets the idea
1: across that plastic is really bad for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about. Is there Something that sticks out in your mind as like the most egregious unnecessary use of plastic that you've seen recently?
2: Oh, geez, where to start?
1: Um, (laughs) Where to start? I mean, I feel like
2: every time I go into a quote-unquote normal grocery store—not that it is normal, but what we deem as a normal grocery store—as opposed to those that are working to reduce packaging, for example, yeah, it's just it's the the produce. I think, Mm -hmm. yeah sitting on like a styrofoam tray, then covered in plastic. I mean, it. there are a lot of different examples of it. I'll, often the produce like has its own protective skin. It's just so interesting to me that that as a society, um, you know, not across all cultures, but many have, you know, relate uh, something wrapped in plastic as more sanitary as something that isn't. Yeah, so I think I yeah, I find some of that stuff really egregious, like just, it has its own
0: packaging, you
2: know, Um, bananas, I think are a good example of that.
0: For sure. When bananas come wrapped in plastic, I just, that's a, that's the most face palm of them all. I feel like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. I once saw a set of avocados that were wrapped. um, They were on a styrofoam tray and then wrapped in plastic. (laughs) yeah I see that all the time yeah they're trying to sell them as a group of three and it's like hey they're ripe
0: I'm like I I can pick up a ripe avocado on my own thank you totally yeah
2: yeah but also like you know you go into a coffee shop not only is it a single-use cup but then it's like double cupped and then there's also like a sleeve on it like a paper sleeve and then it's just like all you know the little plastic stir stick and then the little cup like the lid and then you know and 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 the list goes on it's like all just for one beverage that's probably going to be consumed in like less than 10 minutes and all of that pointless packaging goes into that one beverage i also find that totally mind boggling
1: greenpeace has have you guys been engaging with some of the major coffee chains i'm curious to know how how that's going if so
2: <laughs> we have been and i would say that The conversations are mixed. There's definitely, I would say, finally a recognition of a problem. So that's, you know, the first step. Yeah, sort of the more public recognition of the problem because, you know, let's be honest, these companies have known for a long time that they generate a lot of waste. Uh, I think it's only, you know, though in recent years that images of their products in the actual environment and their contribution to the plastic pollution crisis and the waste crisis has really uh, been brought to light, and so I think they realize that it is a PR nightmare. Um, yeah, you know, but at the same time, we haven't seen the leadership that we we hoped we would see. Um, you know, it seems pretty obvious that uh, these companies, since they're you know, when it comes to a company like Tim Hortons or Starbucks, there's literally you know um, a restaurant almost in every neighborhood, or at least in every community. Um, especially when it comes to Tim Hortons, you would think that um, they would innovate in a way that creates a model of reusables that works for the customers and for the planet, because they're well set up for that, you know, you can get a coffee in Saskatchewan. And if you're doing a road trip, you can drop it at a Tim Hortons, you know, on your way into Vancouver, if you were to do sort of like a deposit return scheme uh, that we've seen at a smaller scale in a bunch of different cities um, around the world. But yeah, you know, it's, as I say, it's been really disappointing to see um, that there's been so much focus by these companies on continuing their disposal centric model. So, oh, well we'll make our cups allegedly recyclable or, or, oh, we'll try to make them from a compostable material. Um, But essentially they're just perpetuating the same throwaway model, and they're not actually thinking about ways to continue to, you know, um, support their customers in their coffee experience, but at the same time, not generating, you know, millions and millions and millions of pieces of trash, um, and then often pollution every week for decades.
1: Yeah, I, I think you mentioned something interesting, which is like the focus on recyclables and biodegradables wonder if you could tell me why those aren't good solutions to the plastic pollution crisis.
2: Sure. So, you know, like going back to what I just said, which is that it it just keeps perpetuating the same throwaway model that isn't working for us. So, you know, right now our, we exist in a linear economy where we take something from the natural environment, we make something, it then gets turned into waste, and then we repeat, like take, make waste, linear model is what we operate in and whether it's plastic or uh you know paper it's all the same waste generating pollution contributing model we know that that isn't working like across the board how much waste overall we generate as you know a global society how much pollution we're creating how we're just destroying you know forests and extracting oil and polluting and all of it It, none of it's working so we really need to move away from an extractive model and we need to keep things in a loop like if we have a material we need to be able to use it ideally for the rest of time in some format and so when we you know we've seen a lot of companies um, and even governments really you know try to point to other disposable Alternatives as a as a solution, Um, but when it comes to paper, you know, questions like is it contributing to deforestation? Like, what is the source of that paper? Um, A lot of bioplastics, a lot of bioplastic still has petroleum in it, or it's made from another material. You know, often corn. um, You know, is it coming from a harmful industrial agriculture operation? These are all questions that often aren't asked, and so you know, that product, that alternative could be creating just another environmental problem. Um, but then when you look at, okay, cool, you, you allegedly have created a, you know, not cool, but, you know, that's what <laughs> the companies are yeah. saying, cool, <laughs> look at us, we have a compostable cup. Um, it's like, okay, so where's that going? And the reality is, is that a lot of the municipal composting facilities can't take bioplastics, or a lot of different types of allegedly compostable packaging, it's actually those products are going to landfill anyway. So it's, it's not having a better outcome. And also there's a lot of confusion, understandably by customers, um, by the public of what do I do with this compostable thing? Is it compostable in my own composter? Is it compostable at the city? Can I recycle it too? Even if it's compostable, will it be recycled? there's so there's so much confusion um that basically we're just creating a different type of waste at this point um and often pollution we did a a beach cleanup and brand audit um last year
1: was that where you sort of look at for like what brands are have trash on the beach or
2: yeah totally yeah so we um essentially it's it's looking at the companies that are responsible for the branded pollution that you find. And we've created a top five polluters list in Canada, but we've also done it globally in collaboration with a bunch of other different organizations. Um, but the thing that was interesting that we were really paying close attention to last year was that, you know, we've seen companies like Coke uh, that owns Dasani water bottles. You may have noticed on the Dasani water bottles, it's like, Oh, 30% or something plant-based. But that doesn't make a difference if it's in the environment. <laughs> it's still, you know, it's still polluting. It's still either being recycled or not. Like it's not, yeah, it doesn't really do anything. And even when we would find, say, a paper straw or a allegedly compostable cup, they were still polluting you know, it still takes however long for those to break down in the environment. And a lot of them actually are only designed to break down in industrial composting facilities. They're not designed to break down in the actual natural environment. All of that to say that we really need to be moving away from disposables as a group. And single-use plastics are currently the most problematic of that group, but they're all problematic. And we really need to be looking for reusable. Or just no packaging at all, um, depending on you know what the good is. Um, we need to be looking at those kinds of solutions and not just thinking we can, yeah, swap out one disposable with another, and that there you go, you've ticked the box.
1: I'm curious, from uh, brand audits like this, uh, what are some of the worst offenders when it comes to plastic pollution?
2: Uh, so Nestle is always um, like I guess I'll I'll kind of mix the global results and the and the results in Canada. Um, But Nestle is always in the top of the list. Um, Coca-Cola is always in the top of the list. In Canada, Tim Hortons is always top of the list. They were second in 2019 for the second year in a row. Um, McDonald's comes up a lot, Starbucks, PepsiCo, and then we've seen Unilever and um, I believe Procter & Gamble those are other big players. It's kind of who you would expect when you think about walking through the community through your community and potentially seeing garbage cans on the streets overflowing. I mean, I I can just walk up my street here and outside of a Tim Hortons or a Starbucks, I mean, the garbage cans are just overflowing and bottle caps, you know, you so often see Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Gatorade or whatever bottle caps in the environment. So it's kind of all the all the brands that you would think because they're very present just in our, you know, in our everyday lives.
1: I'm curious about uh in terms of the shift away from single-use plastics, are there any initiatives that get you sort of excited um or any that you think are really interesting?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um we've seen a number of zero waste or bulk refill, unpackaged Uh, grocers open up across the country. And I find those really exciting, because they've gotten a lot of interest. Um, There's really been, you know, a hunger for people, no pun intended, for that kind of model. And they're doing really, really well. And they're, you know, they're always, in my experience, and speaking with them or engaging with them, you know, they're always trying to Continue to improve and push the bar. It's not, you know, it's not like they're all squeaky clean, the ideal model of uh, circularity and zero waste. But that's also because they operate in a non-circular system and. Um, you know, it's been really interesting hearing about the challenges that they face in terms of sourcing product, and um, you know the different things that they've had to go through in order to try to offer legitimately zero waste or unpackaged goods, as opposed to just you know having it be zero waste or unpackaged in the store itself um, for customers, which is two very different things. But those initiatives. Yeah, offer hope because there's a lot that can be learned from them to scale up those kinds of models and have the larger grocery chains adopt certain elements of of those models um, and employ them so that more people can have access to zero waste um, and um, unpackaged, more sustainable, more socially responsible options. Because that's the big issue now is that it's just, it's really... You know, you you really have to go out of your way to truly dodge plastic in your daily life. Um, A lot of people don't have the time or the means or the energy or um, the access. So we really need to look at models that are scalable and scalable quickly because um, this problem is getting worse every day. Uh, But there are lots of those around us if sort of major players would actually adopt them, and if governments would actually incentivize those more circular reuse, refill, unpackaged models, as opposed to uh, subsidizing, you know, petrochemical and plastic production, which is what has been happening.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, sort of on the government side, what are the kinds of things that you're calling for? Do you think, uh, should governments be going for like plastic bans right now? Or should they be focusing on like taxing um, straws and things like that? Or what's your approach?
2: Yeah, they should really be putting bans in place. I mean, they should have done it a long time ago. We've we have seen some governments around the world that have had you know bans in place for quite some time on certain particularly problematic items, but we have we're not seeing like a comprehensive approach, which is what is really needed, and it's needed now. Um, we know that plastic is toxic. It's toxic to wildlife. It's toxic to the environment. It's toxic to ourselves, and the government for example in Canada under the Canadian environmental protection act it lists toxic substances under this act and then regulates the production or consumption distribution of those toxic chemicals and so just like we saw you know with the ozone the whole ozone layer and how governments all came together to ban ozone depleting substances that's what we need to do here there's a global plastic crisis Plastic pollution crisis and plastic waste crisis, and governments need to come together and basically just no longer allow that toxic polluting substance to be created. We are really uh, trying to push for quick action to, as I say, like eliminate, start to eliminate the most problematic and unnecessary. As we work towards, um, ideally, moving to a place, uh, you know, in a in a low carbon. Economy scenario where not only are we cutting our reliance on fossil fuels as we kind of think of them most usually you know in gasoline in our cars or those kinds of things, but also cut our dependence on fossil fuel dependent or fossil fuel byproducts which plastic um, you know is is one of the major lifelines that the oil and gas industry is um, is holding on to as you know, a lot of global governments recognize, okay, well, we at least need to do something to cut our emissions, but plastic seems to be getting off um, and not being associated with that. So we're still seeing investment by governments into that part of the sector. So we need bans and we need investment in the alternative, more sustainable circular models that we actually need to be moving to.
1: I'm curious about uh, one refrain that we'll often hear on issues like straw bans is that it can make, create challenges for people with disabilities. And I'm just curious um what your thoughts are on that issue.
2: That's definitely a really important issue. And one um, that we need to be thinking about when we're talking about alternatives or the solutions. Um, so impacted communities across the board need to be engaged in the discussion of solutions. And, for example, when it comes to straws, people with disabilities who require a straw and um, who feel as though plastic is the best alternative for them, they should totally have access to a straw. And so, you know, when we talk about bans of single-use plastics, of course, we need to be mindful of those exceptions and those areas that we need to address. You know, it isn't about you know, just this like blanket approach and not considering the exemptions or exceptions. It's about looking at the main source of the problem and and how we can address the bulk of that waste generation um, and eliminating that. So, you know, most straws are unnecessary and some straws are necessary. And so if we eliminate the most that are unnecessary then those ones that are necessary are no longer a problem. You know, that's, that's kind of how we need to be looking at it. And, you know, that's going to come up when it comes to a lot of different non-essential plastics because people and have relied on them for different uh, reasons. And also they, you know, in some ways they have, of course, like served a purpose um, and they've replaced other things because plastic does have its qualities You know, we've definitely seen that in the medical community, but, you know, we at the same time know that there are alternatives um, or there are the potential for alternatives that could meet the same needs and um, tick the same boxes, but that aren't potentially derived or created from plastic. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's really about making sure that we're having all of the right people in the conversations when we're talking about what the solutions look like and what needs need to be met for those solutions.
1: Um, I'm curious because it it's July. And so for listeners that might be trying Plastic Free July, do you have any sort of tips on what some of the best approaches might be to either eliminating or reducing plastic use in their lives?
2: So I've definitely uh, personally participated in Plastic Free July. You know, of course, we've done it. Um, Greenpeace has... Participated in Plastic Free July in different ways, but um, I've personally done it as well, and you know, experience a lot of the same challenges um that many other folks are experiencing as they're trying to cut their plastic footprint. I guess some things that you know, if if you're going to really go for the gusto and try to you know <laughs> not um, completely eliminate plastic from your life for the month of July. that you know that's a major undertaking and it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of research Um, it's going to be really interesting and really informative and and also not sustainable in our current system so you know I one of the big things I would say is like don't don't get discouraged if you can't fully eliminate plastic because it's pretty well impossible for most people to come anywhere close to doing that, but if you, you know, I would say if you want to just start somewhere, just focus on a couple of items to eliminate. You know, focus on something that seems a little bit hard and and conquer it. You know, if if takeout coffee is your favorite thing in the entire world, and you just can't for whatever reason seem to remember your reusable cup or you don't have one try to do that, uh, I would say. And if you're, it's also the time of COVID right now. um, So it's, it's also a bit challenging. um, But also, you know, like what, what Greenpeace as um, an organization has tried to focus on for Plastic Free July, is also this idea that, you know, we all need to do our part, we all need to think about our consumption, and how we engage with different products and the planet uh, and people more broadly. But at the same time, like as I said several times, we operate in a broken system. And so there really is only so much that you can do as a person or that, you know, most people can do. And so the really most powerful thing that you can do during Plastic Free July is actually use your voice to tell your favorite restaurant or to tell, you know, that large supermarket chain um or to tell an elected official that you want something different that you you know you want a plastic-free option you you know maybe even say to them i really want to use a reusable coffee cup but i you know for whatever reason me bringing my own cup isn't a reality for me but i would love to be offered a reusable option so you know just engaging in a way that shows that there is support for something different I think that's really the, the most powerful uh, thing that people can do, other than obviously taking action. There are a bunch of different organizations that have a lot of calls to action that people can engage in, but either try to tackle something that helps you like really do research and, and change your behavior a bit that you think will last or use your voice, I would say.
1: And if people want to get sort of more involved in more political actions on plastic issues, what would your recommendations be there?
2: we right now actually um because for those that aren't aware um the federal government had committed to moving towards a ban on single use plastics um in 2021 so what that ban would look like we don't know yet but because of covid uh they've delayed that they've delayed the announcement on that and While theoretically, they're creating the regulations that will inform that ban, um, we sort of don't know what the timeline on that is anymore. But there is still, uh, you know, a need to be moving in that direction. And so if you go to Greenpeace, uh, I think it's greenpeace.ca slash plastic, you will find different petitions that you can sign. um, And also you can send a letter to the federal government send an email. Um, a letter and email format to the federal government urging them to m- not only move towards a ban, um, but ensure that that ban is really comprehensive so that it's, you know, a, not just banning one or two items, but actually looking at the full group of problematic and unnecessary plastics and banning the major contributors to the waste and pollution crisis. Um, but we also globally, we do have a toolkit, and it offers a lot of different ways that you can get involved to help tackle plastic waste and pollution at the source. Um, And part of that toolkit is uh, basically how to engage elected officials um, and how to push for bans in your own communities or province or territory or federally or whatever the case may be. So it does offer a how-to guide if that's something that's of interest. But there are a lot of different towns and cities across the country um, and provinces that, you know, now have the potential for bands um, and other measures to reduce plastic on the radar. And so, you know, even just doing a search of your, where you live, and then looking to see if there are already, if it's already a topic, and then doing a bit of research to see um, how you might put pressure, uh, that would be a good way to, to start.
1: Are there any um, places that have sort of already acted and are doing really well on plastic bans, or is it sort of a planning stage kind of thing?
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, you know, around the world, as I said before, there are, there are a bunch of different jurisdictions that have different forms of bans in place, um, with varied success. Yeah, I guess the, the varied success is, is often related to, how strong the industry is either lobbying against it or um, disregarding it, you know, it it sort of depends. But we've definitely seen, you know, lots of examples of where bans of certain items have been put in place. And then we've seen either a mass reduction or elimination of that item from the waste streams and a mass reduction in the environment. Um, And actually just recently, one good news Story popped up in my uh, news feed.
1: Good news in 2020. What <laughs> I know, I you know. It was shocking.
2: But on July 1st, it was an exact year since the Prince Edward Island be- plastic bag ban went into force, and so they've they kind of did like a reflection on the year. And what was really positive coming out of that was that. They saw the total reduction of plastic bag waste from the waste stream. So it just was not part of the waste stream anymore. They saw that while even though businesses were allowed to offer a paper single-use bag alternative for a fee, most uptake was of reusable bags, not of the alternative disposable bag, which is a victory. And there was really positive uh, support from the public, really positive support from the business community, and even um, the Retail the Retail Council of Canada, which represents, you know, some of the bigger retail players. There was even support there saying, you know, good, this is kind of like level the playing field, where all we, there's clarity of what, we can be doing or not doing. So it was just a good example of, you know, there is political will, there is interest from the public, and everyone kind of worked together to eliminate, you know, pointless plastic bags from this island province. And a lot of other provinces are looking to them, actually, following their lead and trying to learn from Uh, their example. And, you know, we've seen some other maritime provinces or Atlantic provinces express interest in moving in that direction as well. And so, you know, I think it's, that's only one type of single use plastic, but it's one that they've decided to start with. And while now we sort of, you know, we're past the point where we really need to just be doing a piecemeal one by one approach. I think what it shows is that it can work, And if the goal is eliminating waste and therefore not creating the opportunity for waste to leak into the environment, it shows that bans do that. That, you know, again, is why we really need to be pushing governments to move in that direction um, and quickly.
1: Uh, You had mentioned petitions before. And one thing that I'm curious about is when an organization like Greenpeace sets up a petition and people sign it, what then do you do with it afterwards?
2: It depends on the type of petition that we're doing. So the, the one in support of a strong federal single-use plastics ban, that actually, so that's an email. It's kind of, you sort of feel like you're filling out a petition because it's not like it's a lot of work. You don't have to write the letter yourself, but you fill in certain fields, and then it, that email actually goes to those people. There are other ones, if it's just you're, you're signing your name, for example, And then, you know, like more of the collectivism, what we often do is um, we sort of set a time frame as part of a larger campaign. Um, And what we often do is we'll give a petition a certain amount of time to gain, uh, gain signatures and we will often communicate to the target. Um, often say, if it's a company, we will communicate to them that the number of petition signatures is rising, or this is the number that we're current, you know, we currently have when we're communicating with them, either publicly or directly. And then we will deliver those um, signatures to the company in one form or another, whether it's through, um, you know, more of like a creative confrontation way, or whether it's actually just putting all of the names, you know, on a, thumb drive, and delivering that to, say, the CEO or uh, the decision maker. So it it comes in a lot of different forms, I guess. But generally, the goal is to have those names, even if they're not initially, you know, being put into a CEO's email inbox, the desire is for those names to eventually be um, shared or the number of signatures shared with the company.
1: And is, do you find that that's like persuasive that companies sort of see this many people have signed and they think, oh, this demonstrates an interest and might shape what we do? Is, is that a powerful tool?
2: It definitely can be, especially for companies that say aren't often the focus of um, you know public pressure or customer consumer pressure um, or that haven't really been in the spotlight. Very much, they see. You know, it's a it's a great way to show public support or support by, say, you know, their consumer base. You know, for the need for them to change. You know, of course, there are so many different petitions um, across so many different issues these days, Um, and so you know, we definitely hear sometimes about kind of petition fatigue or oh, it's just another petition or whatever. Um, But the reality is that no matter what, it is an indicator of support on an issue. And that is something that um, a company or a government can't dispute. You know, it's that many people care enough about that particular issue or want change enough to have lent their voice or lent their name to that initiative. And so, you know, we'll often, say, engage with a company or a governmental official, and they'll note uh, that they've seen sort of, you know, that the number of the petition has been rising or they're, you know, taken aback by the the high number of signatures on a particular petition. So you don't always need uh, like a million signatures to, to show that an issue is really worth noting. Um, it just depends on, you know, who you're trying to communicate to and or who you're trying to change. Um, and then kind of like gauging, you know, what level of support do you think is needed in order for it to have an impact on that decision maker or maker that company, you know, what's going to make them understand that this petition doesn't, it's, it's not only this number of people that care, this is just a representative, you know, representation of a growing movement of people that care.
1: All right, I think that's all of the themes that I wanted to get through, but I was like to ask if there's anything that you either wish we'd asked or that you'd like to tell us.
2: I think it's great that we touched on um reusables or yeah, single use in the time of COVID and reusables. I think one thing to note is that recently Greenpeace and this organization called Upstream worked together to get um over 125 physicians, scientists, and other public health officials to, or experts to sign on to a statement that essentially is meant to assure customers and also businesses that reusables, when basic hygiene protocols are employed, um, are, are totally safe to be using during COVID, and that plastic is not inherently more hygienic than a reusable alternative. Um, And that's been something we've really been working to highlight. Um, And I think it's been a big question by the public, especially during COVID, you know, is it, should I really um, not be frequenting the places that, you know, are, have reuse or refill models? And, you know, I think that what's been really great about this sign-on statement is it shows that it really comes down to just proper health and safety protocols and, and sanitation processes. That's what it's really about. And that's, you know, what it's always been about, you know, that's, that's where we need to focus. Um, And it's not that plastic is the thing saving the day um, or that plastic is the, you know, the most hygienic option. Um, So I think that that, yeah, that's something that I think would be great to, to spread more um, widely. One other thing, I guess, um, that's worth noting when we talk about solutions to the plastic waste and pollution crisis, I touched on this a little bit, but companies are often just trying to, you know, find that easy swap out or that easy fix to essentially allow them to continue just to produce single-use plastic. And one thing that's been coming up a lot uh, in industry circles and in government discussions around solutions Um, is this idea of chemical recycling. And so some people may have seen, um, if they have gone to one of the big supermarket chains, um, that some of the water bottles, the branded, the house-branded water bottles, say 100% recycled plastic, recycled content. So that means that theoretically there's no virgin oil that's gone into that plastic product and companies are really trying to promote that as a more sustainable plastic alternative but for one thing chemical recycling is it's a very tiny 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 uh, piece of the recycling sector it's very very tiny it's also very costly it's energy inefficient there are a lot of toxic and waste Residuals that come out of those processes. We don't know a lot about it. And most importantly, those processes rely on a steady stream of plastic waste into them. And then they still produce a, a single use item, even though if you capture every single item and it goes back into that same thing or that same facility, then okay, you can call that a loop. But the, that's not the reality because the reality is that billions of single use items are still being produced at the same time. And collection collection of those items is not effective. So yeah, I just want to flag that, you know, if folks see that 100% recycled content, um, and think that it is a better option, it does not have virgin oil in it, but it's still a single use item that can pollute in the same way. And that is still, you know, potentially not being recycled. There are a lot of things out there that look like they could be a good quick fix, but if it seems too good to be true, you know, it usually is.
1: Right. Okay. So no no quick fixes, no gimmicks. <laughs> Gotta just yeah, stop totally. single use. Got it. <laughs> wow.
0: There was a lot there. <laughs> what is it, fourteen years in the industry now? About that. About that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can tell. Um it's nice to hear that you're not totally demoralized having no, worked.
2: <laughs> not surprisingly,
0: I know. <laughs> um is there a call to action that you have for anybody for, for Plastic Free July or or just in general? Definitely. Um if
2: folks are keen to send an email to the federal government, that would be amazing. It takes like two seconds. Just go to uh greenpeace.ca plastic and you will find that that take action box and others if you want to as well but i would say that's the single most important thing that folks can do right now is support you know us as a country moving in the right direction
0: nice yeah i'll uh, i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so people can find that super easy that's a really good call to action i like it if people want to follow us on Twitter we are at pullback podcast we've been getting some shade from the palm oil uh, <laughs> industry so if people want to from the from the plastics Brigade want to shade us we'll take that too <laughs> thanks so much for joining us Sarah we really appreciated talking to you today
2: thanks so much for having me it's been yeah it's been great to
1: connect.